0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. We will soon return to our uh, sermons on the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have um, one more week together, and then I'll be away for a week, and then I'll be back, and then we'll get started on uh, assurance of grace and salvation, Lord willing. But in the meantime, we do have interesting matter before us. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Years ago, not too long after my conversion, I was listening to R.C. Sproul on the radio. And he summarized the Puritan theology in this way. Sin is very, very bad. God is very, very mad. And thus, the salvation that has come to us in Jesus Christ is a great salvation and a glorious one. Over against this, he summarized the contemporary theology in this way. Sin is not so bad, and God is not so very mad. And so the salvation that has come to us in Jesus Christ is not very great after all, but a small one. In our day and age, well, I think Sproul has it right There's much talk in evangelical circles of the grace of God, but little discussion of his wrath against sin and sinners. So much so that the uh, God of the Scripture sometimes seems quite alien to the evangelical mind. When he's presented as being angry with sin and sinners every day. When he's presented as one who hates the workers of iniquity. In the language of our um, text, they can see the rainbow, but they cannot hear the thunderings and the voices, nor see the lightnings. Let us set our text before us. The vision of things that are has passed away, Revelation 2 and 3 And now we have entered into the vision of things to come, the things that must be hereafter. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 sets the scene for the visions concerning the future, but we won't actually have our first vision of the future until until chapter 6. But it is necessary for the stage to be set upon which all of that symbolic history will play itself out. It is not insignificant that the first thing that John sees is a throne. And one seated upon the throne, the great God of heaven, sovereign and powerful, (coughs) glorious and majestic. And even on the judgment seat, remembering mercy. He is surrounded by an emerald rainbow. The second thing that John sees uh, would be the 24 elders seated upon uh, 24 thrones. The priest kings clothed in white with crowns of gold, no doubt um, evoking the 24 courses of priests and Levites that came up to serve God by turns. And each course was represented by a chief man, as we saw in First Chronicles. But it is very interesting that now the priest-kings are not serving by course, but they are all there together, attending upon God. And God is greatly glorified in the multitude of his attendants. We come now to a third observation at the beginning of verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Our text in Revelation seems to uh, be purposely evoking Exodus chapter 19 and the experience of Israel as they were at the foot of Sinai. Uh, Exodus chapter 19 beginning in verse 16. And remember some of these images we've already had. the, The trumpet voice and so forth. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And notice the the net effect of all of this upon the people of God. They tremble at it. There's something frightful in it. As there always is when Sinners come face to face with the holy God. Verse 17. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. And Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down and charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest thus, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and sanctify it. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. And then uh, shortly thereafter, the Lord delivers the Ten Commandments audibly by a voice from heaven. And you remember as the history is remembered in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you remember the effect of this on the people as they heard the Lord thunder audibly from Sinai. They were afraid. And the Lord says they did well to be afraid. And they asked for a mediator, somebody to stand in between, lest having come face to face with the Lord their God, the Holy One of Israel, they be consumed by Him. And the Lord says they did well to seek and to desire a mediator to stand between. Here we certainly have in the thunderings and lightnings and the trumpet blast of Sinai a display of the holy majesty and glory of God. And it inspired in the people reverent fear, as no doubt John was inspired with a reverent fear when he heard the thundering and the voices coming from the throne and saw the flashes of lightning. But there is, a, uh, we can make a nearer approach as to the reason why this is so frightful. And it goes beyond what we might call the phenomena of thundering and lightning. Jehovah delivers the law and its threats. Remember, he said, tell them not to come near, as this law is pronounced, Thus, I break forth upon the people, and they die, lest my holiness consume them in their sinfulness. What we will find as we proceed in the book of Revelation, this is not the last time we will see this phrasing of thunderings and lightnings and voices. We will see this from time to time, and it always means the same thing. The pronouncement of God's judgments against unrepentant sinners and enemies. And don't we see the connection here? The thundering of the law and its judgments. And we will see in Revelation the thundering of the law, its judgments as applied to real people in historical events. I'll give you just one example because in some ways, it's a, it's a summary of much of the material that follows it. If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. When we come here, we'll come, we, we will uh, undertake a larger explanation. But we have had revealed to us the seven seals or we should say six and with the breaking of the seven you have the seven trumpets we've had the seven trumpets presented here and with the breaking and with the sounding of the seventh you have seven bowls or vials poured out uh, here by way of summary before there's a a digression or a retrospective digression beginning at chapter 12, you have a summary of everything that's getting ready to come in verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in His temple the ark of His testament, and there were lightnings and, thund- and voices and thunderings, and an earthquake. Remember what we saw on Sinai? And the trembling of the mountain and great hail. Very much a summary of what uh, of what John will see in the um, seven uh, vile judgments. If we were to look at the summary of effects that this ought to have upon men, to hear the thunderings and voices and to see the lightnings, for the believer and for the penitent, this yet inspires a reverent fear of God. For he is holy, and we are sinners. And it is only the covering of Jesus Christ that that assuages our fear and our trembling, and gives us confidence to come into his holy presence. But we come in fear and trembling. Boldness in Christ, fear and trembling in ourselves. But to the impenitent enemies of God, to the profane and the unbelieving, this is terrible. And the threatenings of the law are so so terrible that unbelievers must suppress them. But we also have here uh, uh, a structural concern in Revelation. As I said, from time to time we will see the thunderings, lightnings, and voices. But here we are taught that we must trace them back to the divine throne from which they originate. Remember it is said here that they issue forth. They're flowing from the divine throne. So all judgments and calamities have to be traced back to their first cause, which is the divine sovereign upon the throne and his decree. And his thunderings from that throne will have, if you will, their echoing in the world of men. But we are being taught here to see the connection. The bad things that happen in this world, the natural evils that are experienced, are not experienced by chance. But they are experienced at his decree. One other thing that I want to observe here. All of the facets of the courtroom scene, have you noticed? They're all being described in their relationship to the throne. Every facet is described in its relationship. Go, go to Revelation 4.2 again. And I want you to notice this. When you slow down, uh, as I'm forced to slow down in the study of the Greek text, it becomes very plain. Verse 2, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And that throne becomes the center of the entire description. So there's a throne set and established in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne. So. Here you have a description of one sitting on the throne and an emerald rainbow that is round about the throne. Verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne... Proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Do you see the patterning, how everything is being related back to the throne? This is very significant. Here we are being taught that all of reality is theocentric. God is at the center of all, and all that happens proceeds from his throne. By way of application, we'll talk about this, but all of the fallen world wants to suppress the knowledge of this reality because it is an uncomfortable truth. But the church is uh, to be self-consciously theocentric. Reality already is God-centered. But we want to be self-consciously and purposely God-centered. And by way of uh, summary, as we consider the thunderings coming from the throne, all events, and especially judgments upon the enemies of God, all proceed from the throne, from that glorious throne. From this I wanted to take just one use. We must train ourselves to be more self-consciously theocentric. And children, that word theocentric is just a fancy-sounding word that means God-centered. We want to see God in His connection with everything. We want to see God in His connection with our lying down in our beds at night and our rising up from our beds in the morning. We want to see God in His connection to the cleaning of our room and the obeying of parents. We want to see God in connection with our math homework and so on. We want to see God in his connection with everything. In our particular text, we see the whole church organized and centered on his throne. Notice here that his throne is the organizing principle and uh, the church is gathered around and organized around that throne. And all events proceed from that throne by his decree. We're going to see not only the thunderings of judgment, but the one who uh, is seen upon the throne has in his right hand what? He has the scroll of history. Uh, It is a symbolic representation of the divine decree and all of the things that will come to pass. A reality uh, into which no man can look but has to be revealed by the great prophet of the church, Jesus Christ himself. This uh, spiritual reality, God at the center of the church, and God at the center of all, is here uncovered for us. And we need it to be uncovered, because sin-blinded eyes uh, cannot see it, Because a sin darkened mind and heart does not want to see it. Fallen creatures suppress this reality and we need to be retrained to recognize it. This is part of what the scriptures call the renewal of the mind. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Unconverted Sinners know that there is a God, and they know that they have to do with him. In other words, they can't put him off. They are always ultimately going to have to reckon with him. But because this is so very uncomfortable, they suppress the knowledge of it. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The, uh, notice that verb there, hold. They hold the truth. In contemporary English, that, uh, that almost sounds like a positive thing. But the context, you look at it and you know that that's impossible. They're not holding fast to the truth or embracing the truth. Uh, The Greek verb is a lot plainer to us, I think. Kateko is actually a, um, a compound of a preposition kata and echo. Echo means to hold. It's a verb, kata, to hold back or down. Positively, when this verb comes up, it means something like to hold back or to retain it to oneself. So it can have a positive sense. But in a negative context, it means something more like to hold back, to restrain, or to hold down, to suppress it. (coughs) I'm not as smart as the men who translated the King James Bible. But if I was going to translate this for you, I would translate it suppress. To suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that becomes very clear that that's the meaning as we proceed in the text. Verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. They know that there's a God. And they have some apprehension of the truth of God. And so Paul goes on and explains. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even His eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul's teaching couldn't be more plain. Rational creatures look at the things that have been made and they always draw the same conclusion, that there is a God who made them. And they can even learn some things about this God. They learn something about His eternal power and Godhead. They know something about His being and that He is powerful. And this is so evident that they are unexcusable in the denial of it. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. I
1: want you to notice
0: in verse 21, it says, when they knew God, they got the picture. The problem with fallen man is not a lack of information. They got the picture they have the knowledge. The problem ultimately is with his heart. He does not want to worship this God. So he suppresses the knowledge. He pushes it down. Some of you will have heard me uh, um, tell this story. It made a deep in- impression upon me. In some ways, uh, changed me forever. I was sitting in my dorm room, during my undergraduate studies, when I was reading Jonathan Edwards—not one of my textbooks—I was reading Edwards. I don't remember where I was in particular, but he said, "Sinful men hate God, and they would kill Him if they could." What a what a powerful statement! No compromise, no waffling, straightforward. Sinful men hate God, and they would kill Him if they could. And I remember pacing around my dorm room and thinking, if I, if I went out and I pulled the university campus, uh, no doubt there were very few truly converted people on that campus, but if I had pulled that campus, how many of the people, even the unbelievers, would have said that they hated God and hated Him so much that they would have killed Him if they could? I thought, well, you probably wouldn't find a single one that would say that. But as I read on with Edwards, he said, he said, but don't be fooled. Because what fallen man does, because the reality of the true God of heaven makes him very uncomfortable, and I'll come back to that, is he invents a God with whom he can be at peace. And then he's at peace with his idol. And so you ask him if he hates God, and he says no. But what he really means is, I'm at peace with my idol then Edward said, but if you present the true God of heaven, they hate him very much. You present a God that hates their sin in his holiness, the very thing that they love. And that he hates the impenitent sinner. Psalm 5, verse 5, that he hates the worker of iniquity. That he hates them in this. And that he is omniscient. His judgment concerning them is infallible. He knows them to the very bottom and is not mistaken in his judgment concerning them. And that he is omnipotent. He's well able to execute the judgment that he has decreed against them. And that he's immutable for all of eternity. He will not change his mind. You present that God, they hate that God very much. And, you know, interestingly enough, if you present that God to an impenitent sinner, they'll not like that God at all. They'll that's not the God that I know. And they'll hate that God quite uh, a lot. But, uh, but think upon the fallen man in his condition. He loves his sin. He knows that there is a God and that this God is holy and infinitely opposite to the very thing that he loves. So how is he going to continue in it in any sort of psychological comfort? Suppress, suppress, suppress. Do everything that you can to bury that truth so that you can live in some measure of comfort and enjoyment of the sins that you love. There's another thing that complicates this in our fallen condition. In our fallen condition, although we are spiritual uh, creatures, we become very earthbound and blind to spiritual realities. We don't much concern ourselves with spiritual things. We're more concerned with what are we going to eat? And what are we going to wear? And where are we going to live? And how can I get through these 70 years as comfortable as possible? Earth-bound, concrete-bound, not very interested at all in spiritual things. So we have a great need of God to open our eyes and reveal to us spiritual realities and to change our hearts so that we might care about them and prefer them above earthly things. This is the condition of the unconverted man, and this is what he does. He suppresses this knowledge of God. This, he suppresses this vision of God on the throne of the universe ruling over men. It's uncomfortable, and so he buries it. The condition is different for the converted man, but there's still a task. Because we are in the process of putting off this suppression and putting on a God consciousness. And all of us are on the the road from the complete suppression to the full realization. And we need to recognize that. That there's not a single one of us that is consistently theocentric. That is consistently God-centered. That's a lifelong process that will only be completed in glory. Consider, just to illustrate this, consider how difficult it is. most of what has called itself Christianity in the history of the world has denied, self-consciously denied the full sovereignty of God. They've skewed the picture. God is no longer in the center. They push God off to the side. Man sits and makes the decisions of ultimate importance. They deny that God is the first cause of all things that happen. Think about evangelicalism in our day. Do you remember, um, in in our world, in this day and age, and I suppose it's always been like this, but we receive very quickly reports of wars, and rumors of wars, and disasters, and calamities. And every once in a while, when these things pop up, you will have an evangelical leader step into the fray and say, this is the judgment of God. And what happens? The entire evangelical world instantly becomes uncomfortable. They want to assign these things to chance. That God, if he could, would have prevented these things, because certainly the God we believe in would never judge vex, punish men, and they become uncomfortable. And it happens time and time again. You'll have one of these men. They'll have a moment of bravery. It's the judgment of God against idols and idolatry and idolaters. And then you get the uproar, and he retains. Well, perhaps sin isn't so bad, and God isn't so very mad concerning these things. It was really only Augustinianism that was completely consistent in its view of reality. That everything is traced back to God and to His decree. Everything is traced back to His will. Everything else, inconsistently. Pelagianism hardly traces anything back to God other than the creation. And semi-Pelagianism and its um, child Arminianism, inconsistently trace things back to God when that makes us comfortable. Trace other things back to ourselves or to chance when that makes us more comfortable. It was only Augustinianism that traced everything back to God. It was only Augustinianism that had this view. This courtroom view of God at the center of everything. But we still have a problem, don't we? We are Augustinians, called Calvinists. And theoretically, we have God at the center of all things. But practically, well, that's more difficult to know it. And to affirm it during your quiet and sober moments is one thing. To affirm it in the heat of the day is a different thing. Let me give you some examples of how difficult this can be. All the way from the mundane to the terrifying. It's very easy for us to think about God during our times of worship. To have God at the center. Well, I say that. Sometimes even that's difficult as our thoughts and our attention wanders away to laundry and what I have to do Monday morning and all of these sorts of things. But we're a little bit more consistent during our worship and we see God at the center and we're actively trying to think of Him as being at the center during those times. But when we're just simply working it becomes more difficult. Do we hold God at the center when we're Repairing the car, or cutting the grass, or folding the laundry, or changing a diaper. Do we hold God at the center during those times? And that in a self-conscious sort of way. It's, not, it's nothing less than the renewing of the mind by a retraining. Can we look at something as mundane as folding the laundry and putting it away as God has set this duty before me in His providence. And He commands me to do it in love both for Him and for my family. He commands me to do it for His glory and with all of my might. Remember what Solomon says, whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Do your best job and do it for God's glory. Can we do it then? In the midst of the normal and mundane things of life. How about in the midst of difficulties? Think about when uh, uh, financial troubles come. As they have come to a greater or lesser extent for us all. When financial troubles come. Do we become fearful? As if there were no God in heaven. No God sitting upon the throne and no divine promise that He will care for us. I use these by way of of example. But are you starting to see the difference between being theoretically God-centered and being practically God-centered on a day-by-day, task-by-task, moment-by-moment basis, it is difficult for fallen creatures, sinful and given to suppression, and earth and concrete bound as we are to do this. But this is the task that is set before us. And one of the best ways that we can do this and train ourselves to do this, do not neglect uh, your worship day by day in secret places and in family. Make that a priority so that your mind is always being trained. To think of God and all of the things that you face in life. Mundane things and happy things and frightening things. Another way that we can do this is by, um, uh, and I I know the difficulty of this. I confess before you that in my family sometimes we have kept times of fasting and thanksgiving with uh, some consistency and other times not so much. Sometimes very God-centered in the way we're reading providence. And other times, not so much. Difficult to be consistent. But you should be looking for those times when God is calling you as an individual, or as a family, or calling us as a church, based on His providence, to times of extraordinary fasting and thanksgiving. As we look for these times, and as we're sensitive to God's providence, we've become trained to think of God in his connection with all things. But I thought that um, uh, our sermon wouldn't be complete and perhaps even hurtful if I didn't offer up one qualification that we must be very careful in our interpretation of providence. We know from our picture in Revelation that all providence comes from the throne of God. But that does not mean that providence is an easy thing to interpret. And what it is that God might be saying to us by that providence. Because I'll tell you a truth. As we proceed through Revelation, we will find that the wicked suffer judicial judgments, the thunderings from the divine throne, and the righteous will suffer fatherly chastisements and trials for God's glory, but the externals will look very much the same. And it will sort of look like everybody's just suffering together, as if they were all suffering in a lump. And yet God's spiritual intention toward the wicked and towards his children could not be more different. All of it is painful, but we all know that there is a great difference and a great distinction between a judicial judgment and a fab- fatherly chastisement, or even just a bit of stretching in training. These are very different things, although externally they can look very different. The book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is one of the great themes of Ecclesiastes. Providence to the righteous and wicked looks very much the same. And in this world's realm, it looks like the righteous and the wicked end up in very much the same place. Solomon is a sober man. Everybody ends up in the grave. It looks the same. To summarize this, um, what is really a whole body of verses from this book, Solomon says, All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous, and to the wicked, to the good, and to the clean, and to the unclean. To him that sacrificeth, and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. As he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. You see what he's saying. One event happens to all these different sorts of people. One event. Indeed, the Scriptures tell us that we cannot discern God's favor nor His hatred simply by looking at the providence itself. If we are going to interpret providence rightly, and little flock, the interpretation of providence is uh, a duty. But if we are to interpret it rightly, we must interpret it in the light of God's Word. And if I could leave you with just one interpretive key to providence, and I would say it's the first and most basic key. Study to know your state and spiritual condition. That great dividing line between God's people, believers in Jesus Christ, and the unbelieving and unconverted, That is the first great key in rightly understanding God's providence. We must study to know that spiritual state. Um, Because again, the providence can look very much the same to both. But our interpretation of the providence will greatly differ. Consider to the unconverted. Imagine the unconverted man and he is enjoying a pleasant and agreeable providence. What does the scripture teach us to think about this? This is the season of God's forbearance. He is giving this man a space to repent. And what are we also told? That death belongs to this man, and not a single one of the supports of life belongs to him by right. He is given these things to sustain, sustain himself and give the season for repentance. But not a single good thing belongs to him as a gift from God by right. He doesn't have a claim upon anything. And the realization of that sours these pleasant providences to some degree, doesn't it? But when hard providence comes to this man, it is simply the beginning of wrath. It is the first intimation. Of a full and perfect wrath. An eternal separation from God. In suffering in body and soul forever. It is the first echoes of that. And when we look at the providence, whether it be pleasant or hard, for the unconverted, God's message is always the same. Flee from the wrath to come. Because all of this speaks of coming wrath. And flee while there is yet time. But to those that are converted, when there is uh, pleasant providence that comes to us, we recognize that all of these things are the gifts of God given to us in Jesus Christ. That our claim upon right is a claim that we only have in Him. And so all of the supports of life that come to us are the things that He has promised to us In Him. And we see in all of these things. The fulfillment of God's promises. To us. So we see His love. His fatherly care. His mercy. And His great faithfulness. Is everywhere described in scripture. As a God of truth. Faithful. To all that He has said. In His word. But when hard providence comes. Now we must come to the more uh, difficult keys to exercise. Because when hard providence comes, we're called upon to examine ourselves. Do we find that that hard providence has been coupled by God to some besetting sin? This is when we look upon these things as a chastening at His hand. uh, And uh, the Puritans frequently said that God will... Uh, in some way, connect the hard providence to that sin so that we will see and recognize the connection. So he will, he'll make a connection for us in his providence. Um, but when we look upon these things and we see his chastening hand for our sin, and we know we've been called to repentance, uh, we misinterpret providence. If we look at this as judicial wrath and anger, because it's not. How is it that Paul taught the Hebrew Christians to think about these things? You look at these things as the chastening hand of a loving and faithful father who chastens every child upon whom he has set his love. But when we look upon ourselves and we don't, we cannot find any sin connected to this or we have it looked into our hearts and we have been repenting of uh, whatever sins we can uh, detect and come to mind then other questions are raised because we find that God has manifold uses of hard providences for his children is this further refining to us is he drawing hidden dross to the surface that would never be discovered in any other way that was one of the great uh, lessons for me when I studied through the Book of Job with George Hutchison. If you can get his commentary on the Book of Job, it's very rare, but if you can find it and you can read it, you will never regret the time. But one of its one of its great lessons, um, Hutchison just he marvels at Job. Look at what was required to even get a groan out of the man even get a groan he had gone so far in his sanctification. But the Lord presses him and presses him and finally presses him so hard through these friends that that dross, that hidden dross, finally comes up to the surface. And God does this not to harm Job, but to scrape that hidden dross off of the surface. He brings it to the surface and he brings Job to repentance. And all for his well-being. You remember Job at the end says, I spoke once, but I will speak no more. And I repent in dust and in ash. Sometimes, and we will see this in uh, the apocalypse, sometimes we are simply called upon to suffer. And to suffer publicly and before the eyes of men for God's glory and for the integrity of our testimony. And this also is uh, useful. Sometimes, maybe even most of the time, we don't fully understand the providence. Sometimes we don't understand it at all. We get some spiritual insight into Job's condition. But remember, he never did receive any sort of an explanation for why he suffered the things that he suffered. He simply was called upon to suffer them. And then was comforted, not with explanations, but with God's presence. We won't always understand all of the particulars. But we have been uh, told, it has been revealed to us the general. And we are to look at all of the particulars in this light. For God's children. And for those who have eyes to f- uh, faith, we look upon everything that happens. As ultimately for God's glory, all of it will be useful for His God for God's glory. And all of it is useful for the good, for those who love God and who have been called according to his great and gracious calling. Let us pray together.